Our psalm this morning can be found in Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, guys, come on. I already warned you about the Easter hangover. This is good news. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we do give thanks for your word, for all that you have revealed to us, that you have spoken, and you continue to speak today in the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would illumine us and draw us into all truth, that we know what it is to be united as one, as a body who confesses faith in our Lord Jesus. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As you familiarize yourself with the book of Corinthians, and we're going to have many weeks to do so, you're going to arrive at the question, why didn't Paul simply move on and start over? This place is a hot mess. There is a rugged individualism at work inside of the Corinthian church where leaders were seeking personal glory and recognition and gain for themselves. There was sexual immorality tolerated and approved of. There were disputes between members that were being taken to the Roman civil courts, and they couldn't get along. They were arguing. Husbands and wives were being unfaithful to one another in a significant degree. Members were eating sacred meals in the temple courts of pagan gods. There were class divisions between the rich and the poor, and then when those same people got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, some were getting drunk while not giving anything to those who didn't have anything. There were worship wars going on about what good order meant. And to top it all off, there were people teaching that the resurrection had already happened and there was no future resurrection from the dead. Perhaps the thing that makes Corinth 
this church particularly unpalatable is that the leaders were not humble about all of these errors that they had fallen into. In fact, they write a letter to Paul saying, there's a couple of things we need you to address. Paul handles those in a few short chapters, and then he takes up more the report, the things that he's heard, that this church was not humble, that they were not repentant. They didn't recognize that they needed to change. They thought they had arrived. And despite all of that, Paul doesn't just go back to Corinth and start over. No, he doesn't think the church is an afterthought, but rather he sees the church as a priority of God. And so what Paul does is he begins by reminding the Corinthians of who they are, who they are in Christ. And we saw last week that then in verse 4, he gives thanks for them. And then he moves on from giving thanks to now he is going to begin correcting them. But he does so in a way that is so strange to us. Because you would think that the sledgehammer would come out at this point. But rather, to this church, Paul comes with a gracious framework. He comes appealing to them and convincing them and persuading them to see a better way in Christ about how they can live together and be witnesses of the gospel. Ten years ago, I was in a conversation with one of my mentors, and he was particularly close with me from that time now all the way through the present. And in that conversation, he corrected me rather firmly. And I went away from the conversation, and I thought to myself, I was due for that, that it was appropriate and so later on, despite having been rather frustrated by the first brush with that criticism, it seemed important that I thank him because it was absolutely really helpful. And when I called him back and said, thank you, I appreciate you being committed to me to say something that firm and that strong, I needed to hear it. And not many people will tell me things like that. And then what he said, he said, Chuck, it is the privilege of friendship. He said, and this is my promise to you. This is my pledge to you, that I will always hug you around the neck, and I will be faithful then to knee you in the groin. And he's continued to perform that function. <laughs> and without hypocrisy and without any pretense, this is exactly what Paul does. This is the gracious framework in which he approaches this beloved church that was so desperately dysfunctional. He comes with a big embrace and then a severe thud, directly addressing things, speaking into their lives, examining their hearts, asking themselves to give account of themselves before the risen Lord. And in this process, he shows us how the church is, in fact, to live together in peace. And it's a great a letter to examine just on that basis. Because how does a church, a church is a diverse group of varying generations, varying ethnicities, varying preferences, varying backgrounds. We have such incredible diversity inside of a church. How does a church live together harmoniously? How are we to arrive at peace? And there's three things that Paul is going to outline for us about how we live together harmoniously and in peace from these seven verses. First, in verse 10, 
we see that we are to embrace the grace of what God has given to us. We are to embrace what God has given to us. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, it's interesting. He begins in the positive, then he moves to the negative, then he moves back to the positive. But he says that we are to agree and that there are to be no divisions, and then that we are to unite, be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's interesting here because the word that's used for unite, that we translate unite there, is used rarely in the New Testament, but it's actually the word that's used in the gospel accounts when the disciples were mending their fish nets. And so what Paul is calling the church here to do is to mend what is torn, that they are to repair. And this reveals to us how Paul thinks of church unity, that church unity is not something that we are striving towards. Rather, unity is given, and then it's torn apart. But in Christ, we are one in that confession of faith. And we are together as a family. And then when we import our sins and bring our trash and our junk with us into the church, this is where divisions happen. And so we're to embrace what has already been given to us, what God has entrusted to us in Jesus. And this is how it works. is that we are to accept one another on the basis of what God has declared about us. We saw this last week in verse 2 when Paul addresses the church, how he understands their identity to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that set apart in Christ, called to be saints together. That the way Paul understands the church is that we are the people for whom God has denounced our sins. He has destroyed our past and all of its polluted and sordidness. He has counted it as nothing because of what Jesus has done for us. And now he declares us righteous, that we have been sanctified. We have been set apart for God in Christ Jesus by him, that that is our identity. That's the vertical relation. But then horizontally, we are to accept one another around that declaration and that's the unity that the church has. That we all stand on very level ground because we've all blown it. And we don't deserve a hearing with God. And yet now there's this new verdict that's been declared because of something done outside of us. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That he has done for us. And so now we share in this equal dignity in front of God. That's the unity that we're given Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, is perhaps the best small book on church relations and unity, extremely practical and readable. This is what he says. He says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. And do you see the difference that Christian unity is not something we're necessarily working towards. It's something that we tear apart. It's something that we can tear and that must be mended, that we don't generate fellowship and unity. Rather, we choose to either participate in it 
or we choose to be a destroyer of it. And so Paul is calling the church to mend what they have torn. The word for divisions could simply be translated as well, there are tears among you. There are to be no tears. And so we're to embrace what God has given to us. This is the first step about how a church lives together in harmony is we simply receive what God has already entrusted to our care through Jesus. Now, the second piece of this harmony, in verses 11 through 16, we see that we must renounce anything that vies for preeminence over Christ. That we have to disown anything, we have to renounce it, disown it, anything in the church's life that vies for preeminence over Jesus. Paul tells us that we are to be of the same mind in the same judgment. That doesn't mean that we have to have every opinion to be the same. But what he is calling us to is a unity of mind and judgment in the essentials of our faith or in Christ. That that is what we are to be shared in. So we have these, this same mind in the essentials of faith and not allow non-essentials to define our fellowship. Augustine is attributed with this quote, whether it's apocryphal or not, it's wonderful. Take it in. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This is what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to. Is in the essentials of the faith, in the things of the gospel, in the things of Jesus Christ, there is to be the same mind and same judgment, that you are to be one, And that the promotion of non-essential things, where non-essential things become essential things, and essential things become non-essential, that you can be guaranteed what will happen is that charity will depart from the building. It will leave the body. It will no longer be present. And that's exactly what we find in Corinth that charity was nowhere to be found, and essential things, the moral implications of the gospel, the resurrection of the dead, the primary announcement of the gospel, that essential things have been relegated to non-essential. And then non-essential things, which we'll see in just a moment, had become essential and most important, and it ripped the church apart, absolutely destroyed them. And they had created parties and factions and were warring with one another and suing each other and taking advantage of each other and boasting about themselves and unconcerned with other people. And it's incumbent on the church to always keep an eye upon those non-essential things that could creep up and, and capture people's affections. And to attempt to be labeled as essential things that we must confess. And so here is Corinth, torn apart by non-essential things. But what exactly is the flavor of it? We'll look at two specific things that were going on in the congregation that have bearing for us as well today. The first is that leaders were manipulating the congregation by building factions. You notice what Paul says. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so the Corinthian church 
was being gathered together in groups about who they followed. Now, what we know is that Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Jesus were not responsible for these factions, but rather there are some ruggedly individualistic leaders in the Corinthian community who, as far as we know, don't go named, but they were the ones responsible for pressing these factions down and creating little parties for themselves around particular leaders who were of extreme importance in the first century. And so they were manipulating, using these phrases, I follow Paul. Can you feel the self-righteousness in it? And then do you feel the self-righteousness in the response? Well, I follow Apollos. And then somebody else, well, I follow Cephas. He's the most Hebrew of them all, the most Jewish. And then perhaps the best one, I follow Jesus. (laughs) Where Jesus is called to weigh in on this petty factualism. And so they were using these slogans to manipulate and to attempt to gain power. And that rather than using their position of leadership to serve, they were attempting to build something around themselves. And this is why Paul has to warn so severely that they must build upon the apostolic foundation. That that building of the church must be in keeping with Christ crucified. And if it was about personal gain, if it was about personal advancement, then it was all for naught. Because God knows it and God will find it out. And that's what happened here in Corinth. And friends, we have to be careful in the church, especially when we have disagreements. And the important question to ask is, how do you know when a leader is beginning to move in a manipulative direction? And so I'm speaking about your elders and deacons and my office and John's office. How do you know when the leadership is going bad? It's important to be able to recognize it. It's important for me to have to say it to you so I don't repeat the mistake. But one of the things that you can clearly recognize that happens where leadership gets manipulative is when these labels begin to be applied. When people are marginalized with the labels, oh, well, yes, they follow Paul, and we all know that Paul doesn't speak well, that he's a bumbling idiot, that he's not sophisticated enough, so we follow Apollos. And then the Paul followers can say, well, they follow Apollos, and he had to be taught by Priscilla and Aquila, so he's not worthy of respect. And then the people who support Peter can say, well, you know, Peter is really the the one who Jesus entrusted this thing with, and so we should just follow him. And then the super spiritual people say, well, you're all missing it. It's all about Jesus, and we get direct revelation from him. And you can see how upside down things get because of the labels that are applied. And we can apply labels to one another as well. Oh, you're the people who are for community groups. Or you're the people who are for fellowship. You're the people who are for theology. You're the people who are for church planning. And you're the people who are not. You're the ones who are not. You're the ones who are not. And friends, such labels only shut down conversation. They only tear. They don't mend. They don't help. It doesn't bring forth any fruit. It doesn't bear any godliness. It becomes extremely unhelpful and unproductive as a congregation tries to live together. They become caricatures. And you have to hold us accountable 
never to begin to lead you in that way. Did that not happen? Because we don't have to go that route. It doesn't have to go that way in a congregation. That is what Paul is pleading because it happens when non-essentials become essentials, when things get vaulted up the pole. Now, the second thing that was happening here in Corinth is that there were also preferences, strong preferences at work. Paul mentions the different parties, but we know perhaps the strongest party was the group gathered around the preacher named Apollos, who we learn of Apollos, that he is a colleague of Paul's, and Paul fully supports Apollos' mission, that he sends him places, that Apollos was extremely gifted in his rhetoric, well-spoken. And also in Acts 18, we learn that he's competent in the Scriptures. Apollos was the chief apologist of the early church, it seems. He was a weapon, an awesome weapon that God had gifted. And the problem here in Corinth was not Apollos' fault, but rather because he was so gifted in his speech. We talked last week about the Corinthian problem that they prized what we call speech and wisdom. And speech and wisdom in the Greco-Roman world was connected to rhetoric, where oftentimes people would so enjoy rhetoric that they didn't care, as long as you were well-spoken, they didn't care what you said. Augustine writes about this still four centuries later, where the messenger is, gets confused with the message, that there was such a delight in rhetoric. And so it seems that the Corinthians were still buying into that old, broken, Greco-Roman way of thinking. They were delighting themselves in Apollos' fine rhetoric, and people were saying, we are of Apollos. He's sophisticated and intellectual, and we can follow him. And these other phonies of Jewish origins, we need nothing to do with them. And friends, it's only a preference. A well-spoken, elegant preacher, well-educated, but he had become essential. He had become essential to their faith, and they were allying themselves with him against the others. And they were pressing things that were essential down into the non-essentials. And that is that they were pressing brotherly love and charity, kindness. They were pressing that down to a lower order. They confused messenger with message. This happens in all kinds of ways across church life. And sadly, while it's happening, it's often very difficult for churches to own up to the confusion. That while it's happening among us, it's perhaps the most difficult to diagnose and identify. And what tends to take place is that these preferences become theological rights and wrongs. In other words, somebody has a preference, but they present it as though it's not a preference. It's an essential and that if you're not on with them, then you're not righteous and you're not in. You ever seen it? It's a parade. It's a mask. But it happens. It happens on things like ministry strategies, where a certain strategy that a church decides to use, which is perfectly fine and any church should do, we should use strategies to, to better present our ministries to the world and to better minister to our people. But those strategies gain a certain righteous status, 
and we begin to promote them as if you're not doing this, then you're not with it, and really for the cause of Jesus in the world. That's how it often goes. There are matters of Christian liberty that people chop themselves up with. People typically ask me when I arrive at a church my views on particular things, things that the church doesn't have a settled stance on and that my own denomination doesn't require of me, but people want to know whether I line up with them in these matters of unity. And if you don't, gone. They've exalted non-essentials to essentials. There can be divisions over Christian schooling. Where do you send your kids to school? Church has been torn apart by things like this. Musical style. And then you get down to just the petty things like the number of stalls in the women's bathroom or the color of the carpet. These are all preferences that we can allow to become enormous, monstrous issues. And we lose touch. We absolutely lose touch and fly off in moments of irrationality and tear things up. I mean, tear it up. That's what was happening in Corinth. And so what do you do with that? I mean, how do you arrive at peace and unity when you can have a place that gets so torn up? And Paul's final thing that he says to us in verse 17 is that we, in order to live in harmony, are to preach Christ. Look what he says after all of these divisions. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Some people were priding themselves that Paul had actually baptized them. He said, look, I don't care. He's not actually trying to talk down on baptism. He just has to make light of it, okay? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul wasn't opposed to good rhetoric. He wasn't opposed to Apollos. But the way that rhetoric was working in the Corinthian congregation, he had to say something about it. That there was an eloquent wisdom at work where the people didn't really care about what was being said. They cared about how it was said. And they obviously had preachers who were defective who had defective doctrine. Some of their leaders didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe that there were sexual standards for the church to keep, to differentiate itself from the world. There was a lot of defective things, but they were delighting themselves in the way that these ministers could say it. That's what they were valuing. And Paul says, no, that this is tearing the church apart. It's destroying it. It's renting it from, from below. Everything is at stake here. And he says that, no, God sent me to preach the gospel. And this is what has to happen for the church to be mended, for the torn pieces to, to come back together, for there to be no divisions, for us to agree in the same mind and the same judgment, is that the focus has to get there upon Jesus Christ, that the focus has to get off of ourselves. It has to get off the past. It has to get off of what this person said and that person did. The focus has to get off individuals and their success and their desire to boast and their seeking after glory. That the church can't be about that. That its leaders can't be taken up with that. 
that we have to get off the divisive issues, and that we have to put non-essential things in non-essential categories. And we have to be willing to say what is non-essential. And we have to be willing to say what is essential and of central importance. We have to put the emphasis on Jesus and the grace of God. Get off our preferences. Recognize the secondary issues. Get our focus on Jesus. Listen to the gospel. Feel our need of him. Know that he alone saves and that he alone can sustain the community. This is what the church has to be known for. And when the church focuses and trains itself on Jesus, that unity that Jesus gives us as part of our being converted to him, it's realized. And it's realized not because we focused on it. It's realized because it's simply there. And that in Christ we have one mind and one judgment doesn't mean that we agree on the number of stalls in the bathroom or the color of the carpet. But it does mean that we are one in the faith and that we respect one another and we receive one another because of the judgment and the verdict that God has placed upon us in Jesus. And so we honor one another and we don't label one another and we don't exalt our preferences and make non-essentials essentials. And that when there are tears, we be quick to mend. We see the destruction of divisions. This is how the church lives in peace. This is how the church arrives at harmony. And this is why Paul begins with, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus. This is how the church lives in peace, by our Lord Jesus. He's the instrument of it. And that's the ultimate answer, is focus on him. Hold him high. Let everything else fade into the background. Let's do that. Let's live that way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would continue to sustain and to save us and that we would know the glorious unity that you have given to your church Thank you for the peace that we enjoy as a congregation as we do life together around the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But God, we confess that we have these capacities to create divisions among ourselves and forgive us for that and keep us from it. Help us, God. We're weak and we desire to live as saints set apart for your purposes, captivated by Jesus Christ, controlled by him and loving him. Go with us. Give us your peace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.